everybody and welcome back to the best podcast. This is episode three and I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Ian Davidson from Liverpool. I'm not going to do the Scouser accent because he'll end up shooting me. Um, yes, he's a bass trainer. He's been a singing teacher for a while. He's also works um, <clears throat> with groups and choirs, has worked at Lipper as one of the lecturers there, um, loves working with Harmony. He's uh, had a uh, a record, uh, not a record, you can't call them records, and we'll do a single in the charts, isn't that right? I, yeah, I, I worked on a single. I worked, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of things that Ian has done and he's travelled all over the place teaching and uh, and working as a teacher. So we're going to find out a little bit more about Ian. I'm going to start delving into his background and what makes him tick as a teacher. So... Hi, Ian, and welcome. Thank you very much. I usually start with asking my guests what their singing ambitions were, because most of us started off as singers, really, or in in that vein before we became teachers. Yeah. And I wondered what yours were, because I don't know that we've ever had that discussion. No, um, what were my singing ambitions? I um, I love soul. I love R and B. I love gospel music. And so when I started university, when I started Lipper, because I actually attended there as a student, um, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do really. And back then, um, the um, development deal still existed within the recording industry, whereby you could be a singer and someone would spot you as a singer and then say, right, okay, we're going to put you together with a team, we're going to write songs for you, and we're going to you know, develop you and market you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then with the advent of um, the internet and uh, iTunes and Napster and all those things that happened, obviously things started to change, and then the industry became much more focused on the singer-songwriter and the person who already had something to bring to the table initially as an offering. So you weren't just a singer um, you were someone who was a songwriter who already had some kind of performance pedigree, who already had songs um, and preferably a following um, that they could then build upon and uh, market to, you know. And so I entered university at one particular stage where um, the, uh, the industry was in one particular place. And then I graduated three years later where it shifted to a completely different place. And so I have never been a, prolific songwriter I can songwrite if, if I need to songwrite um, but um, being part of the gospel music industry was a very big deal for me and that's what I spent a lot of my time doing um, and so that's where I kind of existed I existed in a marketplace which was um, really vocally challenging really exciting in terms of um, the places that you used to get, tra travel to and perform in um, met some incredibly talented singers and incredibly talented instrumentalists. Um, kind of became known as the kind of like the white choir director of gospel music in in, in the UK. Won an award for um, the gospel choir that I was running at the time, which was called Sanctified, uh, back in two thousand and five. So we won a, a Gem Award, which was the Gospel and Entertainment Music Awards. Um, but that was never going to make me any money. Never ever going to make me any money. Um, and um, there's a very strong argument to say, actually, should gospel music be making somebody loads and loads of money as a kind of faith-based pursuit? And I, I guess that's an argument that people can have on their own, really. But for me, um, 
that's where I can kind of ended up. Um, and so to um, substitute my earnings, basically there was going to have to be something other. And m as most people graduating from music college find themselves doing, they're signed up to the local temp agency, they end up working any kind of jobs really to kind of make ends meet. But the one question that kept coming up over and over whilst I was doing these temp assignments um, from people was, oh, you can sing. Do you fancy giving me a singing lesson? You know, so um, things gradually then started to shift. Um, I've, I've never really been one for um, the limelight, really. I, I'm much more comfortable on a stage with my back to an audience directing rather than actually leading um, or, or being kind of like, you know, this is me doing something right now. Um, so being a choir director um, or being part of a gospel ensemble. Um, and I, I also love backing vocals as well. I think backing vocalists are the, the unsung heroes of a lot of our pop touring acts. Um, and so I think either a career in backing vocals or being a singing teacher would have been something that would have really appealed to me. And singing teaching was the easiest option in many respects. Um, it's quite hard to get into the back and vocal industry, you know. So, um, yeah, so I ended up um, starting to teach bunny ears people singing, and it was a disaster. <laughs> I think many of us have that experience, yeah. So um, why was it a disaster? Because it was just a sham. It was, I, I could sing. Um, I've always been able to sing. I, my, my, I have a Von Trapp-esque family. I'm one of five kids and we can pretty much all sing. Um, and, and yeah, I was in um, very, very good kind of classical choirs when I was a kid, which obviously brought and developed that on. Um, so the onset of puberty, for example, wasn't a particularly traumatic experience for my voice because it, it was trained. So there's kind of this nature-nurture thing kind of going on. Um, but um, I had no clue what was going on and um, what was interesting about my vocal training at university was is that I went in with an F-sharp belt and three years later I left with an F-sharp belt. So nothing was actually done during university to increase my range per se. I probably just sang a bit more. So my instrument was, was kind of flexible. Um, and used to being used um, so I had a, a, a kind of you know lever arch file of a hodgepodge of notes from various different backgrounds so kind of classical kind of backgrounds from a bit of a still voice craft which we did some workshops in university um, a, a, just a bit of anecdotal stuff that I picked up over time and, and so I was working with people and I was kind of throwing this stuff at them in the vain hope that they'll be able to sing and and not surprisingly now but uh, very surprisingly back then nothing worked <laughs> and so they would put money in my hand and the urge to give them back the money and apologize profusely for wasting their time was incredibly strong you know so um just because you can do a thing does not mean to say that you understand it or can teach it mm. um and um and so that's when my kind of uh, journey into vocal pedagogy and singing teaching began. So um, can you remember 
what you did first or was there a process? Obviously you'd encountered some of it at uni. Did you follow any of that up or did you go looking elsewhere? I, I kind of went looking here and there, but things kind of, I, I was very, very lucky in that um, because I, I had quite a niche established within gospel music. Um, what happened was I was able to approach the head of music at Lipper and say, um, wouldn't it be great if there was a gospel choir at Lipper? Um, because they tried various um, types of kind of like choirs, compulsory choirs over the years, and they really hadn't had much take up or success and a lot of student complaining and muttering. And I thought a gospel choir had that cool factor. Um, so I approached him and I said, you know, can I run a gospel choir? And he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's give it a go. So I went into Lipper and I started doing a couple of hours a week doing a gospel choir. And then it was, well, would you like to run the a cappella choir as well? Oh, great. Yes, yeah, so I'll do the a cappella choir. And then it was, um, we need someone to coach repertoire for the diploma course, the one year diploma course. So basically just helping people source repertoire and listening to it and stuff you know, would you like to do that? And so I started building up these hours and then it came to a stage where they needed um, a, um, a, a part-time one-to-one singing teacher at Lippa. And because I'd worked for them for 18 months by that point, um, they offered to train me in the methodology that Lippa presently adopted, which was something called speech-level singing. Yeah. So um, they basically told me that they would pay for me to complete that training so i enrolled I, I obviously will let's go away and find out about speech level singing which of course I went away and did um and i had a few lessons um with a speech level singing teacher um and thought oh this is interesting and that that person was able to get me to do things with my voice that i've never been able to do before so i thought oh this is really interesting um and so yes yeah, so i enrolled in what was then the pre-certification program for SLS or speech level singing and um but then started teaching straight away so I think I enrolled in the speech level singing pre-certification program it maybe it was in the summer and then I started teaching one-to-one in the September um and um was a massive baptism of fire you know um and I was very fortunate in that um, the same time I started doing this, so teaching alongside my training, which was pretty scary, but, you know, um, Lisa Hoppert, who I believe was your last podcast interview, um, also started teaching at Lipper at the same time, and she was in the next room to me. Um, now, for those who aren't familiar with SLS, there were five levels at the time, and Lisa was a level two, and I was this lowly pre-cert. So to have this level two sat in the next room to me was just an absolute gift because it meant that I could listen to what she was doing. I could also knock on the door and, and ask for help and guidance at the same time. So that was invaluable to mm. me. Actually. So it was the speech level singing training program uh, that taught me how to teach effectively. And that, that's a really important distinction, really. So rather than throwing knowledge of the voice at me, what that program did was actually teach me how to teach. So teach me how to construct a lesson. And I think that's really important because now we're in 2018. So back then we're talking about 2004. So 2018, we've got a wealth of information at our fingertips via the internet. So you can Google or, or YouTube any vocal exercise or anything that anybody's saying on voice and collect an enormous amount of data and then begin to start applying that maybe in singing lessons 
but that does not necessarily teach you how to teach. And I think that that was the strength of the speech solo singing community at that particular point was it was giving us a framework in how mm. to construct a lesson um, mm. and deal with the person in front of you effectively. Yeah. So obviously, well, not obviously, because not everyone knows the history or all of our history and the history of BAST, but there is a strong SLS connection. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit more, partly just by way of explaining a little bit about why um, we were in SLS and then why we weren't in SLS and how it's impacted on our teaching and, and also on the BAS course. And I think this might be quite a good time to delve into that a little bit. So I started SLS very close, well, the training, very close to the time when they first started the training program, which was back in 2000. Mm. And I'd actually started lessons in about 97, was my first SLS lesson. And I'd been looking for a contemporary vocal technique for ages in Australia we just had we didn't have very good access I lived in Perth which was quite remote mm. and the internet as you were saying wasn't what it is now so getting you know you could read books and other than that go to workshops if there was a visiting teacher which is what I did do but I I was very frustrated by the fact that there wasn't a process and when I finally encountered SLS I felt like, oh, here's actually a process, you know, for helping me uh, decide which exercises and then um, a variety of different exercises to apply in different situations, mm -hmm. which I've found really helpful in the beginning. Um, and I think it's really important for us to clarify that none of us uh, best teachers who were in SLS left because we thought the technique was bad or the methodology was poor. Mm. I felt there was, personally, I felt it had more it could develop. Yeah. Um, and there were certain questions that weren't being answered. But ultimately for myself, I departed when the organisation itself really had got to a place where it seemed to be imploding, mm. as opposed to because I felt that there was anything wrong with the teaching. And for a long time still followed the methodology quite closely until I started to learn more about the science side of things. Mm. And then for me, when I came to design BAST, I, I started it initially using SLS as the foundation. And then as, as I got to know more, I, I actually found I was moving away from the very specific methodology that they had. But there were a lot of great things and I, I love the fact that, like you were saying, was the fact that you could go and observe other teachers teaching. You were held accountable on an annual basis. You had to have an exam if you wanted to stay certified as an SLS teacher. So I did that every year mm. for 10 or 11 years and got to level four in the end. Mm. Level four was a bit of a doozy, if yeah. I'm honest. <laughs> that was the panel test in front of seven people. Uh, but um, I wondered what what your experience and thoughts are post SLS. I I think my teaching is still very much rooted in a lot of the SLS mm. um, pedagogy, with kind of like additional knowledge, 
that makes sense. Um, a lot of the stuff that we did in SLS, a lot of the exercises, a lot of the, the pedagogy behind constructing the exercises and the whys of constructing the exercises still make a lot of sense. And they still translate very well to a client as well. Um, but obviously there are things now which I would do very, very differently, but I'd still use that exercise framework in some ways to get those the ideas that I now want to put across. across. Um, so I, I did really, uh, I, I really like the, the sense of community in SLS. Um, I really like the fact that you weren't, I mean, because let's face it, singing teaching is a very isolating career. Um, it's you sat in a room, one in, one out. Um, and so, you know, to actually know that there are other people doing the same thing around the country and around the world, you know, and that you can all meet up regularly and geek out. There's something very, very powerful about that, you know, just being able to belong to that sense of community. And you only have to go to um, a singing teaching event to hear the ridiculous levels of geeky conversation that go on between people because we get to geek out, essentially. So that was really powerful and really important. Um, I um, have always been a bit of an antagonist within an organizational structure. Um, and what I mean by that is that I am very good at um, identifying the faults within an organization. And then it's what to do with that information, essentially. Um, now that I'm older and wiser, there's a lot more kind of keep that information to yourself kind of thing going on about me but also I think if I see something that's wrong and needs fixing then I do feel that um, if people don't say something then nothing ever changes and nothing ever gets done and there was plenty in SLS that I felt could be done better um, could be done in a more um, with a more international and global focus um, and um, could have been more inclusive of other people's experiences from the top of what was essentially a pyramid right up, um, from the bottom of the pyramid, sorry, right up to the top. Um, and I felt like um, things, organisations like SLS um, have the potential, unfortunately, to become guru-led and, and when that happens, mindsets are formed and to challenge that mindset can be the downfall of you um, and I felt that there was a lot of people who weren't challenging mindsets so effectively there's a lot of gossiping going on about what could be better but no one was going to say something so I decided that I would say something um, and and so I did and um, and that was received in a variety of ways and um, and then we mutually agreed that it would be better if I weren't part of that organization anymore yeah so when was that this would have been around about uh gosh 2000 2009 okay was the last sls event that i went to in la um so we're looking around 2010 2011 i'd had the baby so isla was born she was born 2010 so um, probably about 2011, 2012, I reckon it was when everything kind of like hit the fan. But at the time, very similar to what you're saying, 
Um, SLS was in a bit of a state of disarray. There'd been a few big shifts at the top. And, um, and so um, it was the perfect time to actually say how things could be better from my mm. perspective. Um, and, um, and yeah, and that, that's the way it kind of went, really. Mm. So you mentioned that you've taken quite a lot from SLS and that's influenced how you've shaped the Basque course. So what are those things that you think you've taken from SLS? Well, the things that I have taken for the positive have been a process of diagnosing the voice and coming up with implementing particular strategies to address each of those diagnoses. Yeah, I, I think that's, there's, and then individually, some of the exercises, most of the scale, if not all the scales at this point, um, I haven't adapted any of the scales, other than if someone wants to take scales further, because we never talked about scales beyond arpeggios and the long scale and the five tone. But I do talk a bit more about taking modal scales, blues scales, minor scales, um, and then melodic fragments. But we don't really delve into it, but I talk about it in this in the in the course. Yeah. Um yeah, so they're things I took from it. I think I also took the idea that I didn't want Bass to go down the pathway of being a pedagogy mm. or or a cult <laughs> following. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than the fact that I am not the guru, I don't look good in white. Um yeah. I I just I felt like I learnt what not to do with an organisation, you know, because I feel like it's very limiting. It's very self-limiting to have this just one person who dictates how the organisation runs and the philosophy, etc. You know, I, I see that as well issue, and I really want anyone who comes in contact with Bast um, through doing the course or being a member or or just being a part of the Facebook group is that they see that. Here is a bunch of curious singing teachers who are just doing what they can to yeah. learn as much as they need to help their students. And, yeah. and I feel like the course is a springboard that a, a teacher can go from mm. of no knowledge or very little knowledge or patchy knowledge to a really good solid knowledge and now go out, explore, you know, fly, be free, go and join more dots and uh, take your, your current knowledge your past knowledge and and create future things. So I think that's what I've learned. And and one of the reasons I haven't gone down the track of I know I get asked for all the time whether there's any kind of accreditation or um, way that someone become can become a certified best teacher yeah. um, from doing the course. And I have been very hesitant because of the fact that I haven't figured out how to do that without it becoming um, the negative side of becoming a, an organisation such as that. Yeah. yeah, so that that's kind of what I've taken away. Yeah, I think um, with Bast, you know, it's kind of like this very intense kind of burst of information um, that people get to take away with them. Um, so they get all the slides and they get all the, the, the little clips and, you know, they get all recordings of, of, of the sessions every week and they've, they've really got this vast amount of of knowledge there you know that we did not have we we had to go searching for um a bigger organizational structure in order to facilitate all of that and they get this and i think 
what happens then is that people start applying that information as they've got it and then as they start to feel that they need to now branch out from that they need to deepen their knowledge more uh, further knowledge more deeply they then start to do that themselves because they've got that really solid foundation now so rather than just going to google and putting in a singing teaching go you know and being swamped with this huge amount of information they, they've got these small little jumping off points. So whether they want to go into formants and harmonics or whether they want to look at anatomy and physiology or whether they want to look at what other vocal pedagogies are saying, they've got now a comparison point or a jumping off point to start from. And in a way, it kind of, um, does it negate the need for us to be any more than what we currently are? Because it might actually, unless we're getting swamped by people saying that they need us to now do this course or that course or do it you know if we're not getting swamped for by our present bastees to um to start doing further courses or add-ons then we're actually doing our job really well mm. so we're actually saying to them here's your jumping off point mm. so now go and discover what it is that you want to go and discover mm. um, and i think by and large people are doing that um you know, and, and across a variety of methods, and that's the beauty of BAST as well, because if somebody does want to go and join um, um, Voicecrafter still, or IVA, or CVT, you know, there's, there's nothing stopping anybody from going to explore whatever it is they want to, but at least they're doing it from a point of having knowledge, uh, rather than just being like, right, okay, that, that sounds good, I'm just going to go and do that. Mm. Um, and so I think that's why BAST is unique and why um, it's popular mm. um, because um, it's not tying anyone's hands into anything. It really isn't. I think uh, it reflects me as well because I don't really like being tied in. That was another thing that I came away from SLS with was that I felt really constrained. I mean, I was committed and loyal because I'm, I'm like that, you know, when I commit myself. Yeah. But I was frustrated too by the fact that certain questions weren't being answered and I wasn't supposedly allowed to go and explore other things, even though I did anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was constantly going off to other courses and workshops and reading and talking to people. Mm. Um, and I remember having a conversation about a still with somebody once and, I, and they were being very negative about it. And I said, you know what, I'm not so sure. I said, I feel like, still and SLS are two different approaches one is more about developing the voice and the other one's about taking vocal qualities and utilizing them to get certain vocal effects when you're singing yeah. and I think that they could actually potentially work together <laughs> yeah there's a whole kind of um, turf war that can spring up from these things and it's really boring and what I, what I like about being um, so, for example, I'm a member of Ecology in Practice right now. Okay, so Ecology in Practice is an organisation that kind of um, was formed by speech level singing teachers who kind of broke away. Um, and our goal within that organisation was to set up a kind of network of sharing. So people were coming along as teachers, could come from any particular background, um, demonstrating that they have um, a high level of competency and what it is that they're doing themselves but then to come join this group of people and learn uh, but also contribute to that learning at the same time so if you're doing research bring that research in um 
And because there's no requirement on me really to be doing X, Y, or Z, it means that I can take time if I need to, to explore one thing at my own pace Mm. or to actually opt out for a little bit and go, right, okay, I'm actually purposefully not doing any research on the voice for the next couple of months because I've had enough or because I just want to do something different. Um, and there's a, that's been really liberating for me to be able to go, right, okay, I can actually just take some time here and just maybe focus on growing my business or um, focus on another aspect um, of performance. You know, just developing other strands to this mm. rather than thinking, right, okay, oh, no, the new researcher said this, so I've got to now do this and read all about this. Um, and I think being part of BAST, being part of a culture and practice um, allows me to kind of just chill at the same time. And I, I recognize that there are seasons of learning in my life. Um, and that even though I do consider myself to be a lifelong learner, that I don't have to strive or kill myself to try and keep up with the vocal Joneses. Yeah, it's just I can just kind of just take my time, go through information as it comes along, see what piques my interest, um, maybe dig into that a bit deeper. You know, just things like that, really, which I think is really liberating. So have you done anything recently in the last year or so that is not necessarily music or singing related, but has stimulated you in some way as a teacher? I don't know if I've actually done anything specifically. What I'm really trying to do at the moment is look at the person much more holistically when they come in. Um, so I now have, uh, you, I don't know if you can see this or not, but I've now got two couches set up mm-hmm. in my teaching studio. So the first thing we do is we sit on these two couches, especially in the first lesson, and we and we have a chat. And um, I guess people say, well, so what? We, we, we all have a chat. I think me being out from behind the piano, sat on a couch opposite another person, having a conversation is... It's creating an environment which is better and more conducive to them being more open with me um, about what the issues are that they're actually facing. Um, I think me being behind the piano in the first instance sets up a kind of Britain's Got Talent, Simon Cowless kind of, right, I'm sat behind the piano, so therefore my word is law. Mm. And you're on the other side of the piano, so therefore you must have to do what I say, kind of set up. Um, and of course, because people are nervous about sharing their voices with people because it is that extra level of vulnerability. So being able to sit on the couch and have a chat um, uh, as a different approach to just being in the studio, I think has been really useful. Um, but also really trying to find out a lot more about what makes people tick as opposed to just leaping straight into exercises or, you know, what are we singing today? Um and, and if, it, if it is the what are we singing today question, it's a why are we singing that today question as well. So what is it about this particular type of music which is um, motivating you to want to sing it? And I guess some of this has actually come back off the back of me spending a year teaching musical theatre in Spain um, because um, I was very fortunate to work with a genius musical theatre practitioner called Ruth Alexander who is an expert acting through song. Um, And so she really turned me on to this aspect of acting through song. 
um, in a musical theatre setting, but also what are the implications of acting through song in a pop setting? Um, what are we actually doing when we get up to sing a song effectively? And it's a basic, basic level where being expressive and we're manipulating the emotions of our audience. Um, and what are the levels above that? So what do we want people to feel? Do you know what I mean? What are we trying to convey? Is it easier in theatre or is it easier in pop, for example? I think it's easier in theatre, by the way. I think it's hard in pop sometimes to convey emotions um, beyond closing your eyes and just looking a bit wistful. Um, it's like, you know, theatre, you get a, a, a text and you get a character and you get a storyline, you get an ending and a beginning and objectives. So trying to apply some of that as well into why a person is choosing to sing a song um, what is it that they want for their own self-gratification? Because let's face it, you know, we do sing for ourselves. So what do they want from it? What do they want someone else to feel? Um, and if it's a hobbyist who, who has no intention of ever singing for somebody else, do you know what I mean? Well, really getting how they can get into, how they can love what the art that they're practicing, so singing more deeply without the performance connection of it. So how how can they self-soothe themselves through singing if that makes sense mm-hmm. um rather than right well i really like coldplay so i thought i'd sing this okay it's kind of well, you know surely there's something more that's making you take it there's something more that makes you want to engage in singing what is that how can we get that out you know and that can lead to some really interesting and sometimes awkward conversations about people's motivations you know but i think that's really important and Yes, the technical side of things is this brilliant skeleton framework that we can use to really get down into people's voices. I mean, I've had this week three cases of people who I've had to refer to the voice clinic, to the ENT, do you know what I mean? And I know that without my technical knowledge, without everything that I've learned um, over the past 15 years, I would not be able to effectively be able to say to that person, something is going on and and you know something is going on within minutes of meeting them and speaking to them so without even without taking the time to even first speak to them before we even do any vocal diagnosis do you know what I mean we're getting to the point where you go right something is wrong okay I am medically not qualified to make a diagnosis here but I suspect that one of the following things could be taking place right now and we need an examination to be able to do that is really building on that technical framework but to then have the artistic side of things you know what I mean suddenly makes things come alive so much more and makes going to work better mm. because teaching technical lesson after technical lesson after technical lesson is boring mm-hmm. yeah so um knowing that you're engaging with the creative spark that makes that individual that individual within that lesson suddenly makes things so much more interesting. Yeah, it's very important that the teacher maintains their own motivation. And I don't I think the beginner teacher, they get so excited with all the knowledge that they have, they don't um sort of get to that place for a while. But I do remember well my, a recent change that I made to my teaching was as as a result of the fact that I needed more stimulation. Oh, totally. I needed to rethink how I was going to approach yeah. before I started again. I mean, I've just shortened, I've just reduced all my lessons to one time slots. So I only teach 45 minute lessons now. So I used to teach hours and I used to teach half hours. And I found that um, 
a lot of the half hours I'd have clients who were coming for half an hour because they could afford the fee for half hour. Um, but we, we, we'd literally suddenly just look up at the clock and it was time. And we'd have to stop what we were doing. And we didn't really even get time to round things up. It was, a, oh, you know, beep, we've got to go. Do you know what I mean? And, and off you go. And the next person comes in straight away. And then the, the flip side was happening. So in my hour lessons, I was getting people who could afford to come for an hour. So they book an hour. And it was like, you know, an eternity was going past and I'd look up and only 15 minutes had gone by, you know, and, and all my energy was being drained in these situations and my motivation was really, really starting to ebb. So I've sh- all my sessions are 45 minutes now with a five minute break in between every session so that if things do run over, it's not a disaster. If I do need to get to the toilet, it's not a disaster. Um, and 45 minutes I'm finding is a really nice chunk of time to spend mm. with the person. And I can do pretty much what I wanted to do in an hour in 45 minutes for the most part. But also because the price of 45 minutes is not hugely more um, than it was for half an hour, um, my, my old clients who are half an hour clients are now getting to spend a really good chunk of time doing something so it's working well but for my mental health it's brilliant because it means that i'm not losing the will human aren't we and and some lessons you love and some lessons drain you yeah mm-hmm. and it was a, a situation of what can i do um besides pep talking myself to try and stay focused you know mm-hmm. what can i practically do to try and make my time feel more valuable but also feel like it's it's um being put to good use and so short into 45 minutes has really helped that. So aside from that challenge of, of motivation during the lesson, what other kinds of things have been challenging over the years that you remember? Yeah, the, I mean, the, big, the biggest one, which has taken me an awful long time to break out of, and this is a side effect of being under the, um, the accountability and level structure of the speech level singing organisation, was that I felt like, someone was in the room watching me teach if that makes sense so I felt like there was someone waiting for me to slip up so this this idea that I had to teach half a lesson technique and then half a lesson you know uh, repertoire and just feeling like everything had to be formulaic and um if a person wasn't mixing within 15 minutes of meeting me then something was going terribly wrong you know I allowed that to kind of build in me really so I felt like um what's the I had imposter syndrome so I really felt like especially because when I started to work at Lipper I wasn't qualified I was a pre-cert and so I literally felt like someone's going to knock on the door one day and go I'm off sorry you made a terrible mistake you need to go um and uh, and that continued for years you know so um learning that there is sounds silly but learning that there's nobody else in the room other than you and the client is is really really big deal and i think for beginner teachers re- reminding yourself almost organizing that mantra of if this client leaves my studio today having learned one thing more than when they came in with then that is a successful lesson hmm. rather than right i only did five exercises and five constant vowel combinations i should have done 20 and then i would have gotten to mix and oh my gosh we didn't get to that belt section so recognizing it's a process it was almost living as if I would only see that person for one lesson and therefore had to get as much into that lesson as possible. This is ridiculous. I was at uni. I saw these kids every single week in, week out. So there was no logical reason for me to 
to feel that way, but that's how I felt. Mm. So now being able to kind of take a step back, I now also realize that people are paying for my time. And that's from the second they walk in the door, from the second they leave. And if that means having a conversation with me during that time, me organizing their next lesson during that time, me um, giving them some advice, and then spending, I don't know, let's say about 80% of that time singing, that is still worth the fee that they're paying me. They're paying me for my time. And so actually thinking that only the singing part of my lesson was valid and therefore worthy of being paid for, um, and that's not true. So trying to just build up that confidence, I think, and self-assuredness and what it is that you're doing and what people are paying for. Um, and that's something that I really try and get across to the Bastis on the course as well, is that this is your time. And if you complete this course, you know a lot. And you disseminate that information, which is not always going to be done vocally, it's going to be done verbally as well sometimes, is perfectly worthy of whatever fee that it is that you choose to set. Mm. So what uh, do you think the challenges are for up-and-coming teachers? What have you noticed um, from your experience working with developing teachers? I don't know if there's any new challenges. The, the, the big obvious challenge that presents itself for me is accompanying skills. Um, so the teachers who, are, who don't have any kind of um, knowledge of the piano um, are often at a disadvantage for those who do. Um, and I know there are plenty of teachers out there who don't play piano and run successful practices. Um, being a pianist myself, I'm like, wow, hats off to you because I don't know how I'd do it without the piano. Um, but I do feel that sometimes when people um, don't have the piano skill, skills, they can then cultivate a fear of acquiring the piano skills. And so trying to shoot that down, I think, is quite a challenge. Um, that sometimes you will have to sit at the piano and you will just have to dedicate an amount of time to learning how to do the... in every key without looking. And it'll take some longer than others. But I think just... Finding your way around the piano that way, I think, um, is really useful. And that can be a real blockage for people. Um, the people tend to pale a little bit when we start talking in week nine about vocal pathology. And vocal pathology, for me, is one of the most exciting topics that we can talk about. Um, the whole, um, for those of the people who maybe haven't done BAST, the um, feed a passion, fix a pain. Um, quantifiers that we use for why people come for singing lessons, you know, and um, and we do get a lot of people who come to fix a pain, and um, and engaging with the medical community, engaging with um, the uh, the speech therapists, um, and knowing you can hold your own when engaging with these communities, I think is really really rewarding, and knowing that you can play a part in the diagnosis and the rehabilitation of a vocal health problem is, is really satisfying, I think. And a lot of people, I think, they go into week nine kind of a bit like, this is the bit I'm really uncomfortable about. But then end week nine going, this is really exciting. Um, there's a tangibility about medicine, I think, which it, it's, it's quite black or white, do you know what I mean? In some circumstances, you've either got something growing on your vocal cord or you haven't. Um, and, and there's a clarity to that, which is great. 
that's why I find it quite exciting in many respects. It's like, right, okay, there's, there's this is this and this is this. And what was it that um, Rina Gupta says, Rina Gupta, uh, prominent um, LA ENT, she's famous for saying, um, well, I think she's famous for saying it, um, if you hear hooves, don't expect zebras. And I think that all the time when I'm working with vocal pathology cases, do you know what I mean? It's like, if you hear hooves, it's often horses, let's face it. So what are the vocal horses here that we may be dealing with, you know? And so to be able to work in that way with people, I think is, is really fulfilling. Um, but people are quite scared of that. Mm. And then the other thing is the, uh, the blank expressions when you start talking about performance, and <laughs> which hand on heart, I am usually the blankest expression <laughs> in the room when I go to one of those lectures. The other thing that I noticed as a challenge is that people get panicky about uh, choosing the right scale and consonant vowel yes, exercise. And the other one is I sometimes get people saying, I feel like I, I've run out of exercises to give people. And I, I, I don't get that because I feel like there's an, it's almost infinite. It's like pie. Yeah, it, it is infinite. And I think, I think it's a really interesting point, that, because part of me sympathises with that a bit because sometimes you get kind of like, you, you can zone out. So it's like you're playing, the, you're giving the exercises and you give ones the target and then you might get distracted by a train of thought and suddenly you can lose your thread as to why you've given that exercise or what the next exercise is that you want to give. And so there can be that kind of, like kind of stop or pause in your brain. And that, for me, it's perfect then to just go into the song, get into the song, do you know what I mean? Just change tack, get into the song because the song will throw up a load of different exercises mm. that you can and that and so I think it's, it's kind of similar to what I was talking about thinking like you had to run your lessons so the first half was technique and exercise and the second half was song you know throwing the song in there you know can, can suddenly really throw open a whole load of stuff that needs work mm. you know um, and then your brain kind of you know that thing if you, if you just keep doing the same thing it's like it's like a um, if you say your name over and over and over and over again, suddenly it just starts to sound like nonsense. So you sound like you might have done that. <laughs> yeah, I have. I've totally done that, yeah. Because uh, I'm not sure that I've done that. Yeah, but like, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not just your name, like a word. Like, yes, done, I do understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's like, you just start to like, it starts to lose any kind of meaning. I obviously have a different process to teaching. But isn't that good? Yeah, it is, because I, I don't think I've ever been in a place where I, not for a long time, where, I, where I've felt stuck. Um, and it's interesting because I got asked once, you know, how do I plan my lessons? And I say, well, I plan with the end in mind mm. and I'll reverse engineer mm. and, and I'll just, I'll basically do these, what's it called when you go, is that a yes or a no? If it's no, you go there. If it's oh, yes, like you go there. Charts. Yeah. So in my head, there's constant flow charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how I deal with it. So did that achieve what I wanted? Yes. Okay. So what are my options? And then yeah. for me, it's, it's, const it's never ending because I've approached it that way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There are times, though, when you can get to a place where 
you know that nothing that you do in this particular lesson is going to take anything any further because it's a developmental thing um, that the voice just needs time to repeat that over a period of weeks, maybe months before we can get to the next level. Um, there, there has been those moments, but for the most part for me, I, I, don't, I just don't regard the exercises um, in that way. I, probably I did in the beginning, but it's definitely changed. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our um, chat which has been great. Is there any questions you have of me? I usually give the guest an opportunity to ask me a question. What would be a, um, a particularly hard lesson for you? What would be an example of something which you think, oh, this is really hard work and how would you get around that within the mm. lesson? Well, there's two types of hard. One, one's uh, when you've got someone who's uh, not on the right, in the right mental emotional place mm -hmm. and if I've gone in with the idea that I'm here to fix the voice and then I've gradually you know maybe it's taken a few bricks to be thrown at my head realized that actually they're not in their right emotional or mental place to be working on their voice mm. I get a bit frustrated if I'm honest yeah. um I you know if I <laughs> When I'm being my sort of more clinical self, um, I find uh, the whole emotional side of the singer sometimes can annoy me mm. in the sense of it interferes. I feel it interferes with me really helping them get their voice where they, all the things that they're upset about actually could be resolved if they could just remove that emotional stuff and work at the physical, technical stuff. But that I feel is also um, that the fault lies in me there because actually, you know, as you were saying, it's a holistic thing and I then have to take myself back and say, actually, this side is just as important. Even yeah. though I want to go and just work on the voice, yeah, that's, that's not where they're at. So that one would frustrate me. Then the other one is when they have smash their voice around in some way <laughs> and come to the lesson mm. and expect somehow for me to fix the problem yeah. uh, either that or they don't do the work in between and so we're not progressing vocally as much as I think someone can I mean I just love it I don't know if you notice that when someone practices on a regular basis working with their voice is just a breeze yeah absolutely what do you do in those instances when you when you know someone's not working? How do you tackle that? Well, I might have a, that discussion about how do you practice? Mm. Um, how often do you practice? And then if we're not, you know, if they're not practicing, then I have to ask them why you're here. Mm. I mean, for me, you know, people pay a lot of money to come and see me. Why are you spending that money on? And I have to say that in the last few years, because my focus has been more the professional end of the market, mm. I don't get that as much. Yeah. And um, that has been really joyful to, to work with. Yeah. Even, even those people who are hobbyists, as long as they're working, I don't mind because it's way more stimulating then. Mm. But in, definitely in the beginning when I had to work with people from who were less motivated to actually do the work. I found I got frustrated and it's why I realised also that I wasn't suited to teaching children. Yeah. 
um, and I realised that fairly early in the piece. Yeah. I mean, also when I was working at university as well, because there was no kind of, um, even though students pay the tuition fees, there was no actual physical exchange of, of monies going on in the lesson, and therefore there wasn't that cost to actually come mm. to the lesson. There's no motivation really to be there on time or to bring the, you know, bring something to work on or to demonstrate that you practiced and that was incredibly frustrating and um, now that I work just in the private sector I don't get that as much at all to be honest with you which is mm. really interesting um, but that is a really refreshing shift that people tend to value the lesson when there's an exchange of, of, of cash you know it's like I'm actually paying for this so they're on time you know they've, they've brought the song with them that they want to sing and they ask you what is it I should work on in the week you know mm. um, so yeah that is it is frustrating I agree yeah and you're right you get it more in the institutional setting uh, you know mum and dad have paid for it or they've got a loan and they haven't they don't realise they've got to go and pay it back. It's not till later that they go. And I've met students from when I was working at ACM who've gone, I didn't realise how lucky we were and how I should have taken more advantage of being there and all the people I had around me. And I got, you know, I just had no idea. You go, yeah, try to tell you, but as they say, you can lead a horse to water. <laughs> Can't make him sing. <laughs> yeah, great. Well. Thanks very much for sharing your journey and your wisdoms. And um, I look forward to continuing our discussion at some point later down the track when we'll catch up again. And, uh, yeah, see everybody else somewhere in the best community. Cheers. Thanks, Lynn. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>